You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Thanks, Seth. Uh, my wife, Marcy, asked if I was going to address the elephant in the room today. Uh, my hair. I, I guess I should. Uh, well, I guess I don't really need to since I got like 15 texts from you all when I turned my video on. You know, I just decided there's a lot of things that we are realizing these days that we could actually have lived without. And I just decided hair is one of them. And Seth, your beard and your hair looks great also. Uh, I highly recommend the uh, buzz cut. And as Adam Church pointed out this week, it's kind of hard to like hide how far the hairline is actually receding. You know, just it's just it's happening. It's happening. Uh, well, my name is Nathan. Welcome to, to our meeting this evening, uh, especially those of you who are visiting with us. I'm so glad to be with you all here. Um, and we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae a city in Turkey in probably the early 50s or so, uh, what we just call the letter to the Colossians or just Colossians. We've seen Paul expressing his thankfulness for all that God has done and is doing in this growing body of Christians. He is pumped for all that God is doing. And he's praying that these Colossians would continue to grow in their knowledge and experience of God who has saved them from the darkness living merely from them, for themselves and in opposition to God, these formerly spiritually dead folks who have now been made alive through the work of Christ, the work of the triune God to bring life, to bring freedom through the forgiveness of sins. And so hopefully all that we've thought through here hasn't just been like a lesson in Christian doctrine, like theology divorced from real life. Everything that Paul has so far written in Colossians 2 has had real and practical outworkings. We've seen this, but on the other hand, everything that we've seen and thought through thus far in Colossians has really just been a prologue to this chunk here that Seth just read. Paul has heard some stuff coming from Colossae. Remember, he's never been there. He, this isn't a church that he planted, uh, but he's been hearing of the growing faith in Colossae, but he's also heard some things that has, have worried him. Things likely that he's heard from Epaphroditus, uh, the Colossian dude who's with Paul here in prison. And so Paul is addressing and confronting some dangerous false teaching that would, like we thought through last week, that would likely deflate these new Christians, would empty them of the power of the gospel and of life in the spirit. So the bad news for us is, is that Paul didn't come right out and say exactly who these false teachers are, exactly the very clearly the kind of false teaching that they're teaching, the kind of thing that is corrupting this church, corrupting the gospel, and perhaps deflating uh, the life of these Colossians. So we're left to do a little bit of speculation, a little bit of perhaps filling in the gaps of what they are teaching and what he is confronting. But all of this, all that you just heard Seth read, flows right out of everything that we thought through last week. Verse 16 says, therefore, and as the old saying goes, the therefore is there for a reason. And since we didn't get to verse 15 last week, uh, verse 15, we're going to pick it up right there. Is gonna, 15 is going to actually help us approach the on-ramp of the therefore with a little bit more speed and direction. But the direction that Paul wants to remind and then pound 
in the Colossians' life and understanding and in their faith is the once and for all accomplished union with Christ that they now experience. It is finished. So we're going to use that framework to think through our text tonight in two halves. Verses 15 through 19, and then verses 20 through 23. That if Christ died, you're alive in our first section. And then second section, if you died, you're alive. If Christ died, you're alive. And if you died, you're alive. If that doesn't make sense, just hang in there for a few minutes and let's hit it. Beginning in verse 15, if Christ died, you're alive. So last week we thought through the record of sin, its legal demands, the IOU of our failure to love God and to love our neighbor as we've been created for. In RGC on Tuesday, we thought through the very real felt and experienced backlog of sin, that the weight, if we don't know what to do with it, can be crushing, can be unbearable in our lives. Like the, like the title character in John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, who... Uh, Bunyan's not so subtly named Christian and Christian has been bearing this immense burden, this giant pack that he carries on his back for the entire story. And then Christian comes to a hill with a cross and at the bottom of the hill is an empty tomb. And Bunyan writes, just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and it fell from off his back and it began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. So in verse 14, we we read this exact thing. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Bunyan says, Then was Christian glad and light and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. But here's the thing. The cross of Christ wasn't just to give us an existential peace, wasn't just to get us to heaven. These are amazing benefits, incredible benefits. But the cross of Christ was a coronation ceremony as John so often refers to it, as an event where Jesus was being lifted up. It's not just for what we get from Jesus, but is what the exaltation of Jesus. It is when he is crowned king and ruler of the cosmos. Not that he wasn't fully before. Remember, by him and for him and through him, all things were created. But in his death and resurrection, Jesus is receiving his kingdom. How? Well, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This word disarmed is more literally stripped. He stripped, he disrobed, he defanged the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, the supreme irony of the cross is that Jesus did all of this. He did the stripping and the shaming as he himself was stripped and disrobed as he himself was lifted up in open shame. By all observation in the moment, this was a place of utter defeat, the end of his life, the end of his ministry and supposed kingdom, not a moment of triumph. But this is exactly and actually the time and place, his death and then his coming resurrection that turns the universe on its head. And like a Roman general, he then leads his defeated enemies in a parade of his triumph. But hang on though, who, who are these rulers and authorities? Who are these elemental spirits as Paul calls them before and after this? This is a, a topic that some of us are very interested in. For others, it, this is a topic that kind of weirds us out. 
The, the phrase spiritual warfare, it doesn't actually appear in the Bible, but the assumed reality in the worldview of the biblical writers is that there is a very real but unseen realm of spiritual actors, both good and bad. And while much of our modern understanding and expectation of these beings likely comes from importing Greek and other mythologies into the Bible rather than, rather than the Bible itself, the Bible often talks about these beings especially in the Old Testament, as Elohim, or just spiritual beings. We're certainly not going to get into a full theology of spiritual beings tonight. I'd be happy to recommend some resources to you if you'd like. But I think we can sometimes think of the good and bad spiritual forces out there as like these two great uh, equal Napoleonic armies, like these giant armies who are approaching each other for open battle. And so we can tend toward thinking about spiritual warfare in times of like giant, huge crisis moments on the world scale or even in the smaller but more personal crisis moments of our life. And who is going to win the day, the good or the bad? Well, it's been a while since I've referenced the incredible uh, This Cultural Moment podcast. But those guys have just a great episode pointing out that Jesus's most clear teaching in the Gospel of John uh, on this kind of spiritual warfare or spiritual beings. Um, Jesus is calling Satan the father of lies, not not the father of like ongoing cataclysmic moments in world history or in the crisis moments of life, but just the father of lies. To quote Dallas Willard, the serpent comes to Eve, not with a stick, but with an idea. So like the, the Russian intelligence model right now and how they are trying to disrupt our American life, not in an all out hard war with armies and open confrontation on the battlefield, but an asymmetrical warfare of ideas played out on social media with disinformation. They aren't creating new ideas or new debates that we've never thought of as Americans like political debates or, or, or race or theology or whatever. These are already ideas and debates that we've been having for decades as Americans. But they are now just pushing on existing conflict and then taking it to a new extreme. And so these evil powers, the, the rulers and authorities, the elemental spirits, likewise come with deceptive ideas that play toward our disordered desires or what Paul calls the flesh. Disordered desire. The same desires that are near universal through time and culture of money and of sex and of power. Ideas that push these desires into even further disorder when we don't realize what's happening. But like the great judo master that he is, on the cross, Jesus uses the momentum of his opponent, the desire for ruling and autonomous power, and then he flips them into open shame. The mystery of the gospel is that of power through weakness, of self-fulfillment through self-denial, of life through death. And all of this is what Jesus has brought to bring the kingdom of God over which he rules and the lived peace of his kingdom for his subjects, who now slowly but surely are experiencing a reordering of desire, a reordering of their loves, of their worship through the work of Christ. These rulers and authorities aren't completely stripped of their influence. After all, a, a wounded animal is often most the, most the most dangerous kind of animal. And so Paul recognizes and confronts these dangerous, 
asymmetrical disinformation campaigns that he hears are beginning to creep into the church like a virus. This disinformation campaign of adding to the gospel, of minimizing the work and the person of Jesus so that more is needed on our behalf. Again, we're not entirely sure who these false teachers are, but like we thought through last week, it seems likely that they are Jewish leaders who are okay with these Gentiles, these non-Jews co-opting many aspects of the Jewish way of life. They are even okay with Jesus being a good and necessary prophet from God who has acted in some way like a doorway into Judaism. They seem to be teaching these new Colossian Christians like, great, we're so glad that you are trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. Like, receive Jesus as your Lord, verse 6. Accept him into your heart. And now, that's when the time of your work really begins. So there are certain foods, there are certain drinks that you should now not eat or drink if you really want to be considered among the people of God. There are certain monthly and weekly festivals and holy days that you must observe and strictly keep in order to be right before God. Because here's the thing, everybody. God gave us all these rules, all these regulations and times of remembrance so that we can be separate from the rest of the world. And more importantly, so that we could be holy and ritually clean as we worship God in his presence, they might be teaching. So they might say something like, you got to keep clean. You got to do all the right stuff if you want to belong to God. So Paul turns all of this on its head. When in verse 17, he says that he, do, he doesn't say that all of these Old Testament things of Israel were wrong or were ill-informed. After all, God gave them to Israel. They weren't a bad thing, but they were shadows. All of these were ways, all, all of these ways and means of holiness, they were just shadows. These festivals and days were times of remembrance of, of salvation from slavery to cultivate a growing expectation toward a greater salvation. These times of rest from work were meant to cultivate faith that God will provide. But they were never meant to be ends in and of themselves. So in the same way that my shadow on the sidewalk looks like me, even very closely, like you can see the, the number of my fingers that I'm holding up on my shadow on the sidewalk. You, maybe if, even if the lighting is just right and the angles are just right, perhaps if you got pretty close, you could even see like, Minute details like my eyelashes or something, very intricate detail of these shadows. But those shadows are not me. I am me. These shadows were meant to prepare for Christ. The substance is Christ. And all of these Old Testament things in Israel's past were but shadows meant to point towards the substance, even the presence of God and the worship of God in the tip in the tabernacle and in the temple. These were preparatory for God's people to grow in their expectation for God, not to just just dwell among them, but to dwell within them, not to just make them ritually pure for a day, but for eternity. Not like these false teachers are teaching that you got to keep clean if you want to belong to God, but that the cross of Christ has come to make you once and for all clean by faith so that you belong to God. So all of these signs are now a past reality, no longer to be presently observed and demanded of by others. Marcy's folks, my, my in-laws, they, they live in the St. Petersburg area of Florida. It's about a two-hour drive or so from Disney World in Orlando. 
And we've driven to Disney World from their house a couple of times with our kids. When you drive through uh, Tampa, when you get from St. Petersburg to Tampa, you might see a billboard somewhere for, for Disney World. And then once you get onto I-4 towards Orlando, the signs for Disney World, they, they start getting more frequent and more frequent. So the kids in the back seat, they start getting a little bit more and more excited as the expectation is growing. Well, how crazy would it be for us to get to the front gate of Disney World where you have to like pay for parking and stuff? And then instead of paying for parking, just to pull a U-turn, to go back to one of those billboards, like pull over on the side of I-4 and picnic for the day under a Disney World sign. The sign that was there to point the way, not to be enjoyed and experienced as the destination. Like I would be a terrible dad if I did that. But for the sake of this illustration, this would be like if despite me, the dad and the driver really wanting my children to experience the inside of Disney World, instead the kids are demanding that we turn the car around and we go back and hang out at the sign. And I would just be like pulling my now non-existent hair saying, guys, you don't even know what you're missing. This is nothing. The sign is nothing. If you guys would just let me take you in, like, come on, there's Splash Mountain inside. There's like the Pirates of the Caribbean. There is Mickey Mouse himself inside. And you just want to go sit under a sign that looks like Mickey? Come on. And yet, this is exactly what these false teachers are cultivating in the hearts and the minds of these Colossians to hang out at the signs, to live in the shadows. On top of that, they are even insisting on further forms of asceticism in verse 18, further forms of like withdrawing or keeping yourself from things that are not even required to be kept from in the law. And then things like worshiping of angels and going about going on about visions. Paul is likely challenging. Again, we don't know exactly what he's challenging here because he doesn't just come out straight and say it. But he's likely challenging what had become a not uncommon Jewish practice of pursuing the, the experience of like a prophetic like vision like Isaiah or Ezekiel might have had. Uh, an experience that some spiritual being might be able to waft you up into a more clear vision of God. Paul is saying all of this is not only unnecessary, but it could actually be a disqualifying thing in your understanding of God and your trust in the gospel. Don't let anyone disqualify you, verse 18, with all of these add-ons. So remember, way back in chapter 1, verse 12, whereas in 1.12, it was the full and finished work of Christ that qualifies you, that positionally moves you. From death to life that declares you as unrighteous to righteous. By faith, Jesus' righteous life is imputed or credited to you as your own. By faith, his death, his death is received from us or by us as a sacrificial substitute for our own death. So that Jesus lives the life that we should have lived and dies the death that we should have died to qualify us and to welcome us into the family of God. So Paul is saying now in chapter 2, to add on to that, to add on to the finished work of Christ that has qualified you, to say that the work of Christ was somehow lacking for life and salvation, to say that is now to disqualify. Because you have actually not laid hold by faith on the very thing that does qualify you. No, if Christ died by faith, you're alive. You're, you're part of him. You are part of his body. You are receiving life and the growth that is from God. To insist on more is to detach from Christ. To detach from the finished 
union with him that we are to share and to experience and to instead rely merely on yourself is to detach completely from the gospel. And yet how often do we base the assurance of our assurance, not on the quality of Christ, but on the quality of our obedience, on whether this week or this hour was particularly pleasing to God, rather than if we are united to Christ who is pleasing to God. Eric Layer on Tuesday in RGC reminded us of a great uh, 2014 blog post from Jared Wilson, who wrote this, thinking about justification, how we are made positionally right before God, and sanctification, how we are growing into his likeness by obedience. Jared Wilson once wrote this, and even as the Spirit more and more brings more and more fruit in my life, even as I learn to trust more and more when I do finally cross that heavenly finish line, there will nevertheless still be sins unrepented, especially among the sins I don't even remember or don't even see. And I will pull my sorry self across that line, some stupid sin still entangled around my ankle, and I will look up to see... Sorry, Eric, Eric could barely get through this paragraph on Tuesday and now I'm, I'm failing completely. Sorry, let me finish. Start that sentence again. And I will pull my sorry self across that line. Some stupid sin still entangled around my ankle. And I will look up to see Christ, the judge standing over me, looking down, considering my pitiful soul. And do you know what he'll say? Well done. Not because of my obedience, but because of Christ. If Christ died, you're alive. Already, already alive. You cannot make yourself more alive. There are not some degrees of life. And so to try to return towards trying to bring life by ourselves out of our obedience, to try to do that is to now return to the place of death. If Christ died, you are alive. But then secondly, Paul's just now getting going. Secondly, if you died, you're alive. Verses 20 through 23. Remember, we talked about baptism last week, signifying our death and burial with Christ. Well, in verse 20, Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? The Christian life is a life of death. It's a life of death to self. Death to the deceptive ideas that play toward disordered desires. Death toward disordered desires. But the judo master mystery of the gospel is that this death leads to life. And so Paul is saying, remember, you died to all that stuff. That asymmetrical warfare of disinformation You died to that. Why are you believing its divisive lies again? It's like Jesus has stripped and exposed the scary KGB spy masters to be just some punk kid who's like slamming orange sodas in Moscow while he's making Facebook posts. It is not scary. It is not ultimately persuasive. So do not let him use your existing desires to push you to the extremes again. And what are the existing desires that these deceptive elemental spirits want to keep pushing you on? The ones that you have died to? What is it that they are trying to uh, re-energize 
to bring to life again in you that you died to, that your performance is what qualifies you, that your behavior is what makes you acceptable to God or not. We quoted a uh, confession that Tim Keller wrote several years ago earlier in our service, but Tim Keller has been one of the most helpful voices for many of us in the past 10 or 15 years or so in thinking about behavior and performance. His book, uh, especially The Prodigal God, is one of the most important books in the history of my own trust in the gospel. And Keller there shows that we all kind of intuitively know and we all kind of intuitively understand that living our lives however we want to is a way to avoid God. Like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son, in so-called bad behavior, just to go out and live and do whatever we want to is a way to get away from, is a way to avoid the love of the Father and to not experience the warmth of belonging. What isn't so clear is that we can all do the exact same thing in so-called good behavior. That if my keeping of all the rules and regulations, if living a more upright life than others is what makes me belong to the family, well, like the older brother in that parable, then I can come with demands and rights that I so-called deserve or that I think I deserve for my right living. And so my good behavior in the same way as bad behavior can be a way to avoid the love of the father and to not experience the warmth of belonging. So do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, they say. Here are things that you must avoid to truly belong. And all of this looks like serious piety. It looks like what the serious Christians do, but it's all a sham. It's all a way to make me feel like I deserve and have earned the belonging of the Father, and yet it is a way to make me avoid the true belonging and the warmth of the Father. The invisible spiritual powers are preying on, are pushing on our desire to, yes, on the one hand, avoid the love of God and the work of Christ in our bad behavior. I'll do whatever I want. Thank you very much. But they are simultaneously praying and pushing on our our desire to perform to belong. That it's up to you. And oh look, after all it wasn't enough or it wasn't good enough. Keep trying. Keep working. Maybe someday, if you someday clean up your act enough, you'll finally belong to God. All the while knowing that we will never meet the impossible standards of God's holiness or even the impossible standards of belonging that we even set for ourselves. And yet even more insidious than that, though, is the lie of you have done enough. You are so much a a, a more serious parent, a more serious spouse, a more serious employee a more serious student, a more serious church member than all of the rest. You have better theology or doctrine than all of those others. You keep reading the right books. You keep doing the right things. You keep rightly spending your money. Or even you just do all of those things just a little better than most other people. And so you're good to go. So one person compares himself with others above him and thinks that he'll never measure up. The other person compares herself with others below her and comes to the conclusion that she's made it. And yet both are putting their hope and trust in what they are able to do. But all of this is, verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. None of this is actually able to reorder love, to reorder desires toward the end for that which they were created, the desire for Christ to be met and satisfied in him. When you add to the 100% finished work of Christ, the sum of the equation then gets zeroed out. You either receive a full Christ with the empty hands of faith, or you come with full hands of a spiritual resume and receive nothing. If the treasury of God's grace is full, if it is generous, if it is flowing and infinite, then the good news of our union with Christ is that we have received a debit card of grace, swiping and swiping and swiping one withdrawal after another from the overwhelming grace of God. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. And if you think Oh, that that kind of teaching is just going to create a people who abuse grace with just one swipe after another. And then they'll abuse grace to cover their sin in their life and they'll eventually just live however they want. Well, it's likely if that's the kind of thinking you have, the kind of thing that you're afraid of, it's likely that you've never understood or experienced grace. It's possible that you're still an older brother trusting in your own performance that you've never really experienced the generous grace of God that only not only excuses, but transforms. And Paul anticipates this as well. And so pretty much all of chapter three is what it looks like to live a life not rooted in and shaped by behavior, but rooted in and shaped by grace. That the gospel comes to both younger and older brothers urging us toward repentance from both our bad behavior, but also urging us toward repentance from our trust in our good behavior. So that that in the deepest nooks and crannies of our lives, we might by faith respond and walk by faith that Jesus paid it all. Now, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow once and for all. He has died, been raised to new life so that we might die to ourself and be raised to new life in him once and for all. And let's now pray toward that end. Our Father, we are so thankful for your infinite love and grace towards your children, that our belonging in your family is not contingent upon our behavior and our, be- our obedience to you but that is contingent once and for all, finally and fully on the obedient life of Christ, our faithful older brother who drags us across the finish line. Lord, might it be so. Might we with perseverance keep swiping with our debit card of grace, trusting in him, united to his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Might it bring greater joy? Might it bring full transformation in our own lives and in the lives of our church? Help us to encourage one another toward this end and help us to grow even more in his likeness by grace through faith, we pray in his name. Amen.
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.